Hello and welcome to The Shindig, a podcast about archaeology and history brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. I'm Dr Tom Horn and I'm joined as ever by our producer, uh, Luke Barry. Hello. Um, in today's episode, it's a really fascinating topic. Mm-hmm. It's with uh, Dr Ryan K. McNutt, who's an old friend of mine. And he works at uh, Georgia Southern University in the United States. And he's the director of the Camp Lawton Archaeology Project. And uh, Camp Lawton is an incredible site. So it was a Confederate-built prisoner of war camp um, to hold, as we learn, up to 10,000 Union prisoners. And it was built um, at the latter end of 1864. And um, I thought I knew a bit about it. I follow all their excellent social media accounts. But look, learn... Uh, stuff yeah. that you'd never heard about it's not before. something like archaeology history isn't my specialty uh, I'm here to do the technical kind of side of things so it's fascinating for me to really get a look into this side into your world really into the archaeological the historical side of things and this story is incredible like you you, said you learned a lot more about it than you thought yeah I was I, you know I thought I'd started the podcast and of course you think oh immediately we've got to get to the to the building of the camp because mm-hmm. as we discovered that was built by by slaves mm-hmm. um and I thought even then I thought I knew I knew that story but I wanted to get there as quickly as possible but Ryan also pointed out that you know you've got to think of the union prisoners as well because they included African-Americans, but they also included people that had been fighting for three or four years. And one of the most vicious sort of mechanized modern wars that, 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 yeah. that was known until the First World War. And he mentioned that, you know, these guys would have had PTSD. And that was something that surprised you just as much as me. It was. It, it's because I, I suppose I signed up for a historical podcast and then you get these amazing human stories and these, this real human tragedy, I suppose. And it's what made it so fascinating for me so i suppose there's nothing left to do then to get into it this is your interview with dr ryan mcnutt today um we've got a very special guest and it's one of my closest friends uh basically like a brother to me and it's dr ryan k mcnutt um who's the project director of the camp lawton project at georgia southern university um Ryan uh, did his BS in anthropology from Middle Tennessee State University uh, and then did an MLIT and a PhD in archaeology from the University of Glasgow. And so, Ryan, could you tell us a little bit more about your your PhD? You studied at the same time as me um, at, at Glasgow and you were looking at finding medieval battlefields and your current project is looking as we'll investigate a civil war, an American civil war uh, prisoner of war camp. So, how are these two sort of related? How can you sort of feed your sort of postgraduate work in with your um, current project? Uh, well, both postgraduate work and the current project are really focused on landscapes as conflict sites, both actual battlefields uh, and also the ancillary um, conflict type sites, prisoner war camps, uh, army camps stuff of that nature and the phd work was really focused at using uh, technologies like geographical information systems uh, lidar uh, remote sensing with more traditional archaeological techniques to kind of blend together a um, focus using cultural historical context and insights to locate fields of conflict uh, in modern geographical terms and also looking at how um, terrain and topography and landscapes affected uh, people within those landscapes. Um, so it's good carryover to Lawton, um, much more kind of 
tightly focused um, with sometimes bigger landscapes, but the same kind of perspectives carry over uh, uh, new technology and very much kind of a landscape archaeological approach to conflict and its impact. That's really interesting because what we're interested, obviously, as a, an archaeology podcast is is, is your, your current project um and could you start just by giving us a little bit of background about the project and then maybe tell our listeners who might not know so much about the uh, u.s civil war just tell us maybe the reasons behind it how it started and then maybe lead into the period where a pow camp of the size that we're going to be discussing today had to be constructed sure um so camp lawton archaeological project um i'm now the third third director um, of the project. It's been going since um, 2010, um, and it's really focused on investigating um, myriad uh, research questions um, in a Confederate uh, prisoner of war camp that was set up to hold Union prisoners um, in extreme rural Georgia in 1864. And the camp comes about um, essentially after the American Civil War uh, starts with the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter in 1861. Um, there's very much a perspective, as there always is, that essentially all these disagreements and political issues just need one um, vicious bloodletting, um, let, you know, let the pressure valve off, let everybody get it out of their system, and then you know, everybody will come back to the negotiating table and the war is going to be over by Christmas. It's pretty much a standard argument for almost every war that I've studied. Um, and as with all wars, it wasn't over by Christmas, um, not by a long shot. Um, you have massive numbers of men on the battlefield, far exceeding anything that anybody in America had really seen, um, exceeding uh by huge numbers, uh, the troops that were in the fields in the War of 1812 and uh, the American Revolution. And for a while, of course, you have POWs that are captured in these huge battles. And for a while, the setup was basically kind of an ad hoc um, exchange system that was known as the Dix Hill Cartel. Um, POWs would get paroled um, and they could go home. You'd have an exchange of POWs between the Confederate and the federal forces where you would have um, almost like a weird currency system where a private was worth one private, a sergeant was worth like 10 private, an officer was worth like four sergeants. And so they would swap their POWs back and forth. And this goes on until roughly about um, the end of 1863 and 1864. And one of the things that precipitates this whole exchange system breaking down is the Confederate refusal to treat captured U.S. colored troops, African-Americans serving in federal forces as prisoners of war. Um, instead, um, by resolutions in the Confederate Congress, they were treated as escaped slaves, even if they'd never been born in the South and were either impressed in the Confederate military or returned to whoever their presumed masters were. Um, there was also, at the same time, an order issued by the Confederate Congress that said that any white officer leading colored troops on the battlefield would be executed on site. Um, this never happened, mainly because the U.S. government threatened to execute any Confederate officers that they held in their control if this happened. 
but this was the breakdown of any kind of exchange system. So all of a sudden you had hundreds, thousands of men on both sides. Uh, the Confederacy tried for a while to kind of use ad hoc uh, solutions like warehouses. Um, one of the famous um, ones is um, Libby Prison uh, that was in Richmond. Um, but eventually they start to realize that it's probably not a really good idea to have thousands of soldiers um, interred very close to the seat of your government um, and very close to the front lines. So they start trying to find something to do with them. And essentially one of the solutions is Andersonville in extreme rural Georgia, uh, move them way far from the back lines, um, put them in a place that can house and feed them where they won't be a risk if they break out or as much of a risk. Um, and at the time, Georgia was selected because it was a breadbasket of the Confederacy. Um, it was producing hundreds of tons of grain, corn that were going north towards the Army of Virginia, uh, pork, beef. So it had plenty of food resources that weren't going to be strained by a prison camp. Um, so they established Andersonville, and they established these big prisons behind, uh, far back from the front lines, as essentially just wide open stockades. Um, Andersonville is probably notorious enough to where I don't have to go into it. Um, there are thousands of men that died during that time there uh, from bad water uh, disease predominantly uh, and overcrowding. It was never meant to hold as many troops as it ended up holding. And as a result of this, um, this is basically how Camp Long comes about. It gets built to alleviate the overcrowding and the disease and death that are at Andersonville. Um, and it's built to basically be the largest prison uh, in the Confederacy in terms of size, uh, not necessarily in terms of occupation, uh, but the stockade alone, which are literally just uh, artifast uh, posts um, about 15 to 20 feet high, depending on which source you read, that are literally just a palisade of logs and ground, and the prisoners get thrown in there. And the one at Lawton um, encloses 42 acres. So that is, we're, we're talking about at that time, one of the biggest prisons on earth, would you say? Um, yeah, certainly. Um, I would certainly say, I don't know if I would say the largest. Um, there's potentially some sources that I haven't looked at, but certainly in the kind of Anglosphere, it is the largest prison on earth. And could you just give us a little bit of an idea for people that maybe haven't seen, I know you'll talk about the, the famous uh, Snedden map later on, but just give us an idea of the sort of topography and, and the layout of the, of the, the, the prison, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So Lawton um, is, is basically a square stockade. Um, it's not a perfectly equal square, square, but it's a square stockade. Um, the sides um, are about um, it's 405 meters on the shortest side um, in length. Um, and so it's a square. It basically sits in, I wouldn't necessarily call it a valley, but for swampy southeast Georgia, it, the stockade straddles a valley um, that a stream runs through. The stream is fed uh, by a mineral spring um, that provides uh, continuous sources of fresh water. It dumps something like 13,000 gallons or thereabouts out a day. Um, this seems to also be pretty standard. Um, there is a stream technically through Andersonville, um, although it was 
very small, um, very fitted. Um, and it was made is, it a sort of, is it a thing then they're 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 looking for it's a sort of cheap uh sewage system and just yeah w water system yeah basically just a cheap water source um essentially they just they don't want to have to dig wells they really don't want to put any more work than they have to um into building these camps um so yeah they typically look for um areas that have stream access where there could be some kind of um, pond or water access within the stockade itself uh, for fresh water access. Um, Lawton seems to have been one of the best arrangements for this um, because one of the problems with the stream at Andersonville, um, in addition to being um, not nearly as clear and uh, not nearly as much volume as water, the Confederate guards also camped upstream at Andersonville um, and all their detritus and feces and human waste flowed into the stream uh, that went through the stockade. So it's pre-germ theory. There's, you know, there but are they would have known. They they would have it would have been something that they knew fine well what was happening, whether they knew about the germ theory or not. That it was yeah. There's yeah bad planning um, essentially. Um, so Walton does um, alleviate that the guards aren't camped anywhere near the stream. You got this kind of constant source of fresh water. One of the things they also do did um, learning their lessons from Andersonville is they channelized part of the stream um, about halfway through the stockade. They dammed up the stream um, and basically dug a long channel for the rest of the length of the, of the stockade that they then used. Uh, bricks, uh, timbers to basically board up. Essentially, essentially they made a sluice, um, and they had water was coursing through it with enough force to clean out anything that was in there, and they set up the POW latrines um, over that sluice. So they're basically going in um, a fast-moving bit of water that's carrying it all outside the stockade. So you're, re you're really seeing this evolution of the prisoner of war camp, and as tends to happen, I imagine you know more than me in, in warfare things sort of get sped up in terms of development in terms of munitions and, and and also but it's interesting to we wouldn't necessarily think of it in terms of prisoner of, of war camps and so they've, they've built this massive site but you said they were trying to sort of minimize their effort but you know the, the confederacy weren't really putting in the effort per se because this was this was largely slave built wasn't it yeah um it was slave built um one of the reasons um uh, Lawton was chosen, uh, and it's in Jenkins County now, but it was in what was then Burke County. Um, and Burke County was one of the single uh, largest slave-holding counties in Georgia. Um, it had massive plantations, um, and Lawton was picked so that they could impress um, slaves from plantation owners to do the construction. Um, we've done some archaeology. Um, there was a grad student who looked at construction methods at Camp Lawton with this kind of idea of impressed slaves in mind. And he pretty conclusively showed that we can tell which stockade walls were built um, by impressed African-American slaves and which ones were built by POWs who were working in the camp, um, helping with the construction as well. So in addition to stockade walls that um, impressed enslaved African-Americans built. They were also responsible for building an earthwork artillery fort outside the camp, um, another earthwork revetment that looked toward um, Millen and the main railroad junction to the south of the camp, 
and they were also responsible for building uh, probably brick ovens that were inside the camp um, for cooking food, though they were never completed and never lit. Um, hospitals, um, guard barracks, shacks, um, ancillary support facilities, uh, quartermaster stores. Uh, there was potentially a shoe factory on site as well. And all of this kind of infrastructure uh, would have been built uh, by oppressed African-American slave labor uh, with a little bit of um, potential POW labor. So when we're talking about Lawton, yes, this, this stockade is 42 acres in size, but it sits in what is essentially a military base, a military complex that covers far more than 42 acres um, with rail access from the railroad that comes by it, um, highway access, um, everything that you would think of as being at a modern uh, military base was present at Lawton, and most of it was probably built by enslaved African-Americans. And, and quite chillingly, as soon as you're saying that, you're saying it's at railheads, you know, also, you know, I don't know if it manufactures thing, it, you know, it, it's got workhouses in it. Um, you, you can't help but thinking of, you know, what's happening in the Second World War with, with, with the Nazis is, is, you know, is is this just what happened when a sort of industrialized or semi-industrialized Confederacy sort of country sort of, you know, begins to put, you know, effort into these things in terms of getting slave labor to build and they're thinking of it in terms of logistics and they're thinking of it in terms of it being near uh, a railhead. Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially, it's all that. It's all those industrial concerns. Um, it's um, it's ready, cheap labor. Um, they can impress. Um, I will say that even with impressed labor, um, it's still costing them money, ironically enough, because they pay um, the plantation owners for the impressment of their slaves. They basically pay them uh, wages that would have gone to a freed uh, person uh, or get paid to slave owners as recompense for their labor. And they also take on the feeding and clothing of um, the impressed slaves while they're um, under their orders. So, yeah, it's very much just kind of industrial um, aspect. Um, the South also, just in terms of manpower, even if they weren't predisposed um, from a kind of uh, cultural economic standpoint to use slave labor, there's basically um, very few white men that are left that aren't um, on the front are otherwise occupied um, in essential jobs. Um, this is late in the war. By this point, um, the Confederate has issued a successive number of conscription acts, and the last one um, conscripted any, um, let's see, boys from 17 and up um, and men over the age of 45. And, you know, that's made me think of now the prisoners. So the Union prisoners are there. Are they similar? Are they, they're, they're aging from, from teenagers to people. What, what kind of age limits? What kind of places are they coming from? You know, you, you get the sort of Hollywood film where, you know, immigrants from Europe, you know, Ireland are coming off the boat and they're being impressed into the Union Army at the docks. Is, is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, it seems to be. Um, not... Um, by no means all of them, uh, but there are a substantial number of Irish immigrants um, in Walton. Um, there are several um, accounts from people who identify themselves as Irish. Um, there are uh, 
Germans, um, Swedes. Um, there's even, as far as I can tell, um, a fairly large contingent of Norwegians. Um, and those kind of recent immigrants are mixed in um, with almost first and second generation uh, people from the same area. Um, there's quite a large number of Minnesota troops that have definitively Norwegian names um, and recognizably kind of Norwegian first names as well. Um, so these are probably the first, second generation immigrants. Um, and then added to that um, is a mix of all of the northern states, um, Michigan, New Hampshire, uh, volunteer regiments. Um, there are also potentially some U.S. colored troops in there as well um, that are being kept as POWs, uh, but also brought out of the stockade and pressed to work um, surrounding kind of facilities. So, yeah, it's very much uh, a melting pot. Um, and that's one of the research questions that we still um, have yet to kind of really delve into is how are these kind of all these different ethnicities sorting themselves out in the POW areas? Because they're supposed to be um, organized by uh, regiments and divisions and put in squads, and that's how they receive their rations. But there's good indications from the primary sources that a lot of them are just, once they're inside the stockade, they're camping by regiment, they're camping along ethnic lines, you get Irish grouping together, um, you get uh, different components. Uh, there's even a reference to an internal uh, police force that seems to be made up of POWs, and they're supposed to keep order inside the stockade. Uh, some of the other prisoners seem to um, have a dim view of them, but they also oddly seem to be Irish. Uh, there's a POW account um, where one of the this guy is talking about them, and he's talking about uh, their activity inside the stockade, and he says something like, um, no true Irishman would acknowledge them as a member of the race. So, I mean... So there's, there's a lot of tension. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, it's, it's a group of scared young men from all over that have been pushed together under high stress. I mean, and the idea is there's there's a literal deadline, isn't there, around? So they're, they've got guns trained on them all the time, is that correct? There is. Um, that is where the term deadline comes from, in fact, is Civil War uh, prison camps, where about um, at Lawton, it is, I think it's 30 feet inside the stockade uh, wall on the prisoner side. It's basically a short fence, uh, scantling, um, basically just a post um, with boards nailed to it, and it runs all the, around the interior of the stockade. And between that fence and the wall itself, um, it is execution if you cross it. The guards here, at, the guards at Lawton um, don't seem to be as trigger happy as some of the ones at Andersonville were. Uh, there are references to them actually giving warning when prisoners kind of cross over the deadline, but there are at least um, three incidences where other POWs saw um, their fellow prisoners executed uh, for crossing the deadline, uh, shot by guards um, who were on top of the stockade in uh, basically uh, uh, little guard shacks. Um, they called them, often called them pigeon roosts, because um, that is kind of what they look like. Um, and they're equidistant around the stockade, um, basically just kind of little huts that have guards in them looking over uh, the interior. 
and we probably got some archaeological evidence of this occurring as well. Um, there is a infield um, round 0.57 caliber uh, mini ball um, that was fired um, from what is almost certainly uh, a British import um, infield um, rifle, um, and it is inside the stockade. It's probably about 100 meters from the um, northwestern wall of the stockade, well within range of an infield rifle. Uh, it doesn't look like it's gone through a person, but it does have deformation on the tip that shows that it's hit um, something soft like sand and kind of buried in the soil. This could have been very well, could have been a warning shot. Um, and from the excavations that we're doing this spring, uh, this spring field school, one of our metal detector hits um, was also a fired uh, 0.69 caliber round ball um, that has quite a bit of deformation to it. Um, this was probably um, fired from an older smoothboard musket with shorter range than a rifle, um, but still well within uh, range of the northeastern wall of stockade where we're working right now. Um, and this probably represents, again, either firing into, I mean, it could always be dropped uh, by someone who picked it up after it had been fired, uh, but it could very well represent being firing from uh, guard towers in stockade, either as a warning shot, potentially to break up a gathering of prisoners. Uh, they were very concerned about uh, groups of prisoners gathering, particularly when they opened the gates to bring in uh, rations, which is one of the reasons why the artillery fort is there, because it's trained directly on um, the gates of the stockade in case prisoners decide to make a rush for it. It's the kind of place, imagine like Andersonville's kind of place that if you had a chance to leave and make a, a mass breakout, you would. So, and I imagine that's mainly because of the conditions, because I, as I understand that you, you essentially had to build your own shelter. And, and this is, they're called, is it shebangs? And is this where the whole shebang comes from? You know, you could just give us a little idea of the conditions they're living in in terms of the structures and and then maybe what they're getting to to, to eat and drink. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is where the phrase, the whole shebang comes from. Um, and there is, prisoner accounts um, are always kind of taken with a grain of salt. A lot of them are written after the fact, well after the fact. Um, and there's almost a, uh, literature tradition of POW accounts very shortly after the war, but they do all agree, all the ones that talk about Camp Lawton agree on the same thing, which is they are brought into the stockade, um, the first groups of prisoners, and there's nothing there. There's stream, um, there are some trees um, along the creek bank. Um, those seem to have been uh, left intact. Um, the Confederate guards definitely enforced that nobody was supposed to cut down those trees, probably because it provided some natural shade and shelter. Um, but other than that, the entire interior of the stockade was clear cut, um, used to build the stockade itself. There are bits of kind of pine logs floating around. Uh, there's tops of pine trees and stuff, tree stumps, but Nothing else. There's no tents provided. Um, there's no blankets. Some of the POWs, if they're lucky, still had things like their ground sheets, uh, uh, rubber uh, ground sheets, um, or blankets, and they would work those in their shelters. Uh, but all the superstructure is basically left to them. Um, 
They also, for the most part, don't have tools. Uh, so they talk about scavenging stuff on the way in, picking up railroad spikes um, from when they're dropped off the depot. And then they're using those to split logs. Um, and then essentially they're taking whatever they can get. The earlier ones are taking uh, logs, splitting them up, um, making kind of really primitive stacked uh, shacks, um, typically by digging down into the ground and making kind of a basically like an Anglo-Saxon. Uh, oh, there's some configured buildings yeah. as, as they're called. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where you've got like a very uh, short kind of superstructure, but then you're digging down into the ground uh, to make use of what you've got. Roofs or pine bows and blankets if they've got them. Uh, we do have some archaeological evidence of ground sheets. Um, there's uh, brass rivets uh, from the corners of the ground sheets that we found in a few areas. So they're using those. Um, but yeah, aside from that, like it is, you make your own structure as best as you can. And as you have successive POWs coming in uh, later on in October and in November, they talk about essentially there not being anything in there. Um, everything's already been used up. It's, you are lucky if you can dig a hole in the ground and kind of cover up with pine bows. There are work parties that go out um, to gather wood, and sometimes those work parties are bringing in um, things to use uh, for tents and structures. But it is very much a case of if you got there late, um, you were even worse off than the people that were brought in. But yeah, any kind of structure that you want, uh, you have to provide. Um, and when and winter is literally coming at that stage because it's October, November is, is when it's occupied. Yes, and 1864 is one of the coldest winters on record um, during the American Civil War. I mean, they talk about snow on the ground in southeast Georgia um, and hard frost, um, the stream sometimes freezing. Uh, so it is a cold winter. It's also a wet winter. It repeatedly rains, um, and they are, in addition to not having hardly any materials to build uh, their shebangs, they also don't have any firewood or fuel. Um, they were, so a lot of them resort to things like the stumps that were too big to kind of chop out, um, either by renting axes or uh, from other prisoners who managed to kind of purloin them, bring them inside. Um, they're basically just setting fires in tree stumps and burning the pine stumps uh, because they don't have access to firewood. Um, so you're, hard... you're, you're, you're cold constantly, you're wet, they're, you know, cleat cliques if not gangs they've got essentially like capos as well as the guards that are trained their rifles on you i mean what, what foods are are they getting then or you know uh, you know uh, and do they have to pay for that how, how, how does that work um so the confederacy is providing them uh with rations um they do at least the first groups that come in are getting more uh rations than they were getting at andersonville and they seem to be quite happy about this but as they go on and more and more men are coming in and the confederacy straits are getting more and more dire as sherman uh takes atlanta um and is floating around in kind of northern georgia the ration starts getting cut um so most of them um, are rations that are, I've actually got a POW Diaries here, uh, which is very much uh, par for the course and the detail, which is one of the issues of trying to figure out what's going on in the stockade. Um, but he says uh, rations, uh, meal, beans, 
salt and bake it. Um, small amounts, um, very small amounts. Um, that is October 14th. By um, November 15th, um, rations is rice, beef, and salt. Um, things are getting cut back. Uh, you will also note that the rations that he's describing don't have anything like vitamin C in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and scurvy is scurvy is a problem for the men that are coming in uh, from Andersonville. The initial rations included sweet potatoes, which are really high um, in vitamin C, but I don't are yams, as you might know them, uh, but I don't know if anybody's tried to eat a sweet potato when your palate is soft and your teeth are already falling out from scurvy, but it doesn't really work. So even though there are sources of vitamin C, um, most of the men who are coming in from Andersonville that have scurvy that really need that are already too far gone to kind of process it. Um, fuel and how many... How, how many people are we talking about just to give people an idea of how many prisoner of war are are, are, are there in, in october and november so starting winter of 1864 um at its height um which seems to be around kind of end of october uh first part of november it's about ten thousand plus pow's inside stockade wow okay um so it is a lot um they in they can uh supplement their rations um should they want to um but um POWs have left kind of price lists of what it costs um 25 cents per quart of beans um you could get um a bushel of sweet potatoes uh for about uh $40 confederate money or eight dollars in greenbacks so that's so, the us that's the union as it were the yeah. the, the federal currency yeah yeah eight dollars in federal currency uh which is a lot in 1864 so there's exorbitant prices and and i imagine quite difficult to to come by uh, excess money if you're literally just confined within within a within a prison camp and and that's something I'd, I'd like to talk about the fact is that they just wouldn't have the money to supplement anything, but we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how this malnutrition, how these conditions are going to lead to the real killer, which uh, as I understand it is disease and, uh, and exposure really that's killing most people. Mm-hmm. Well, that ends part one um, of our podcast with, with Dr. Ryan K. McNutt. Um, I'm sure you find it as fascinating as we did. I think you can hear it in our voices. Um, uh, the next episode will be part two, which we will get into more of what they're digging at the moment into the archaeology of it. And uh, yeah, there, there's still more of these revelations coming through that just right at the end. So we decided to make it into two parts to really tell the story. So make sure to hit that follow button, hit that subscribe button, hit notifications on our Twitter feed. Uh, Recommend this podcast to anyone you think that would be interested. And maybe if you haven't done so already, go back and have a listen to our archive of podcasts that uh, go through a different range of, um, I suppose, relevant uh, interviewees, including our own Dr. Tom Horn here. Uh, So I suppose that's everything from me, Luke Barry. And uh, me, Tom Horn. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs)